Welcome to the Yogi MD Podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Long ago, a little girl afraid to make mistakes dreamed of becoming a doctor. As a young woman, she struggled to manage her frustration, but her curiosity gave her courage to achieve her dream. And she evolved, becoming the doctor she always wanted to be, without the white coat. Teaching yoga to wise women becoming a health integration coach, becoming a podcaster, and talking to humble yet brilliant people like Adam Ashton. I am so happy to welcome Adam, co-host of What You Will Learn podcast and author of the Shh, They Never Taught You. Today, Adam unpacks his lifelong learning toolbox. This is one show and tell you won't want to miss. Thank you, Adam, for coming onto the podcast again. It is really an honor to get to chat again. I know that you and I are both lifelong learners. And so I really wanted to have a conversation about what it means to you, how you identify yourself as a lifelong learner and what you do to walk that walk. Essentially, I want to talk about what's in your toolbox. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. It's uh, firstly, it's a, it's an honor for me as well to be part of this this special year of podcasting. And yeah, I think lifelong learner is a badge I'd like to wear proudly. Uh, I think being a lifelong learner is more important than being labeled smart or productive or whatever any other label, which is like a, a single use thing. I feel like a a lifelong learner means you're always uh, a work in progress. You're always looking. I guess you need that the dose, a good dose of humility to realize that there's always something more that you could be doing. There's always something new you could be learning. Um, so yeah, I like to I like to wear that proudly and and continue to keep learning. That's so interesting that you say that you prefer being labeled a lifelong learner rather than being smart because I almost thought of them as sort of the same badge. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think smart is almost like a, it's almost like the the end point, I guess. Whereas lifelong learner is the the still a, a work in progress. And I think I would rather work with people who were most interested in improving themselves rather than somebody who already thought they were smart. I think it needs a, a good dose of humility to realize that you could be better. Uh, I guess it ties back to that the work of Carol Dweck, the book called Mindset, the, the fixed mindset. Or the growth mindset. The fixed mindset says that how you're born is how you are. You've got a certain amount of skills. This is just what you're dealt with. And the fixed mindset says things like uh, it could work both ways. It could either be, hey, I'm, I'm really good at maths, 
uh, I was just born that way. My brain works with numbers, or it could also say uh, I just I just don't have it. I just don't have that artistic streak. I never got it. Never got dealt with it, and so I'm never going to be good at it. So the fixed mindset is a definitive statement where you either you're good or you're not good. And so I think that's maybe where where smart comes from as well. I'm smart. That's like a, a full stop. Whereas the growth mindset is saying that you can always learn, you can always improve skills, are always something that you could work at and you could get better at. So, with time, with practice, with effort, you can improve. So, I think that lifelong learner falls into the growth mindset, recognizing that uh, it's something that you can work on, you can improve at. I love that answer. I love that. I find the fixed mindset to be terrifying, actually. I like what you said earlier, too, about the growth mindset. I thought about beginner mind that we talk about in yoga. It's an attitude. It's having humility. It's knowing that you are not always going to be right. So being amenable to and open to learning new things. And also something that I learned about this week is the idea of unlearning, which I'd never thought about. I found that piece to be really fascinating. Not just that you're, you gain this knowledge and then it, you're done. But there's this idea of learn, then you practice what you learned. Then you unlearn it when it's time when, for a new concept to emerge or, or layer what you learned. Then you allow yourself a rest period, and then you start the cycle again. Have you heard about that? Uh, I can't say I have too much, but uh, I like it a lot. I like it a lot. Um, and it's something that uh, we uh, before we started recording, I mentioned the, the, the name Derek Sivitz, who's an author. He built this uh, CD baby, sold it for $22 million, donated that all to charity, and uh, has written a couple of books. And uh, he's... A couple of years ago, I heard him talking and he said, I'm writing a book called Unlearning. Um, and so, it was going to be all about that. But I think he's, I think that book shifted a little bit and now it's called How to Live. But, uh, but yeah, so that's, I guess that's the only time I heard about unlearning. But I'd love to, I'd love to hear more. It sounds vitally important. It's just something I read in an article this week about what a lifelong learner is. And it was one of those pieces of advice about how to walk that walk, the actions that you take. And mm. part of the the recommendation is that you are open to unlearning. I think mm. it's another way of saying nice. mental flexibility is the way I interpreted it. Yeah. Well, I've got like a something that, that ties into that, like the, the, four, the four stages of, of learning or the four stages of understanding. There's, it starts with uh, unconscious incompetence. So, you don't know what you don't know at the very start. So, whether that's, uh, you know, driving a car, you think you just get in and drive, but you don't really know all the little bits and pieces that go into it. And then the the next phase, after unconscious incompetence, it moves to conscious incompetence. So, you know what you don't know. You get in the car and you realize that there's all these different things that you have to do that you never knew about. You realize you've got to be checking the mirrors. You've got to work the, the pedals at the right uh, proportion to each other. You've got to move different things with your hands. You've got to do different things with your feet. You've got to be looking everywhere. So, you realize all the things that you never knew that you didn't know how to do. So, that's the, the second stage. Then the third stage is conscious competence. So, 
you get good at driving the car, you've practiced a lot, you know all the different pieces that go into it and you can do it. So, you can drive safely from point A to point B without without crashing or without causing a major traffic incident. But you're always thinking about it. You're always thinking, okay, next, I have to push in this pedal, move the gear stick, slowly release that pedal, slowly increase that pedal. So, you're thinking about everything that you need to do. And then the final stage is unconscious competence. So, after you've been, after you've been driving for a couple of years, you know all the things mm-hmm. you do and it just comes naturally to you. That's when you just get in the car and you just drive. When you thought about at the very start, you think you just get in and drive. You're doing all these things without even realizing it. So, that's sort of like the, the phases of learning that you go through with a skill. But then I think that unconscious competence, that's a phase where the bad habits are just ingrained. Mm-hmm. That's where you... You're doing all these things without thinking and you probably don't even realize that you're not doing them 100% right. And that's where I think the unlearning is most vital. That's where you got to realize, oh, this, my, my golf swing, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm 10 degrees off here, I need to be doing this better. Or maybe you're playing the piano and you, you, you've got a, a thing you do with your right hand that you shouldn't really be doing but it's just natural now. Or maybe you're, you're typing on the keyboard and you're meant to hit this on the far bottom left with your pinky but... You don't do it. With, you do it with your fourth finger instead. It, it was just a natural habit that you that you built in. So I think that's the the unconscious competence stage where you can do it. You're not thinking about it, but you're doing it slightly wrong. So that's where you need to unlearn that bad habit to maybe go to that next stage of evolution. Yeah, I have an example that in my practical life that I've been playing with lately, you know, I love to cook. Anybody who listens to this podcast and listens to me, they're like, oh my God, she's talking about cooking again. But <laughs> but I was thinking about this thing of wisdom and having been passed. I've been thinking about my grandmother a lot lately, my maternal grandmother, and she was a wonderful cook. I want to remember her continue a legacy of being a maternal figure in my family who passes on that love of it's a language of love, really, the way I've looked at it, cooking for my family. So I was making one of the things that she taught us to make was rice. And so you take it for granted. And it's just this thing where I became unconsciously competent, like, oh, yeah, I know, I know how to make a pot of rice. And that's it. Put the rice in, put the water in, that's it. <laughs> and, you know, you leave it for a certain amount of time. It's this ratio. <laughs> but then I was kind of starting to feel unsatisfied with the consistency. So I said, well, what if I play with this a little bit and actually make it mine? Can I still honor what I learned and take that wisdom along with me, but then make it a little bit better? It was interesting because it was this moment where I consciously stopped myself and I said... What if I tried something a little bit different? Yeah, so for me, that was a little bit of unlearning this week. And I like it. (laughs) I like it. Is there a special ingredient that you've added to that mixture? Or what, what did you do differently? I played with the ratio of the water more. And I used my senses a little bit more. There's a... I have a sister-in-law who has a mom... And they're from Thailand originally, and I took cooking lessons from her a few years ago. And one of the things she taught me was really subtle, and I watched her do it, was how she used all of her senses while she was cooking. Mm-hmm. She, rela- she didn't just go, 
I set the timer and I walk away for this. No, it was standing there and being really present and using her sense of smell, listening to the sounds, the sizzle in the pan when things were ready, tasting, touching, Mm. temperature. And so I thought, huh, what if I paid more attention while I was standing in the kitchen and I just started with this pot of rice. And so that's what I did. I played with the ratio. I didn't use as much water. And I just stood there. And I watched it and I made sure to check it and taste it and decide when it was ready. Yeah, well, I think I think that's probably where I am at my cooking journey is in that, in that first stage. Uh, sorry, in that second stage, conscious uh, incompetence, <laughs> where I, I know all the things I didn't know. Uh, when I'm, re- I'm realizing, so I'm very much at the phase where I'm following step by step the recipes and doing exactly what they say. I think net the next stage after that, um, that's when I'll be more comfortable to be using the senses and, and going with the flow a bit more and maybe taking a few more risks, trying a few different things. But you've got to. It's almost like when you're learning, the you you have to have some guardrails. There are some rules to follow, and after mm. you know those rules, after you color inside the lines for a little bit, then mm. y- it's time to step out and take risks. Hmm. Yeah, most certainly. Mm-hmm. most certainly. So, lifelong learner's toolbox. What would you say is in your toolbox? It's been a good uh, week thinking about the different tools that are in the toolbox. Uh, so, I think the first and most important tool is uh, an, 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 an ancient saying, I guess, know thyself. I think that's the first step or the first tool is you need to to understand yourself first. You need to have a good sense of where you are right now uh, before you can know where you want to go next. So, I think you need to have a good understanding of yourself, whether that's a, it could be as simple as just working out what are some of your strengths and what is some of your weaknesses. It doesn't have to be this, you know, intense know thyself where you where you go back to your childhood to work out all the things that went wrong and you, um, that could be one way of understanding yourself. But I'm thinking more of a, just more of a, a, a basic understanding of yourself. Maybe it is taking like the, the, the six dimensions of health and working out how do you, how do you rate yourself on each of those six different elements? Um, so you can understand which is, which are your strengths and which are your weaknesses. So I think that, that first step or the first tool is you need to know where you are right now. So that you can better know, okay, what should I be learning next, um, mm. and what what would give me the most, uh, the biggest improvements, I guess. What else? <laughs> what else? So after we, I guess, after we know where we are, and we've got a bit of an idea about where we want to go, a vital, an absolutely vital tool is being open and being curious. It means asking questions. It means wanting to learn. It means having that growth mindset first and foremost, of actually wanting to learn. It's like, I guess, if you, for me, I think in school when I had to do history and geography and you had to read poetry and had to read lots of uh, books for school that were like old books from, you know, hundreds of years ago in weird language, like when you have to learn that stuff, it's not really enjoyable at all. Without that genuine interest, that genuine curiosity, that genuine openness to wanting to learn those things, you're really not going to learn. At the best, you can maybe memorize a few quotes and enough to pass the test. But without that genuine curiosity and openness, you're not really going to learn anything. Mm. Passive versus active is what I'm hearing. Educa- being educated, mm. it's we're being acted upon. It's very passive. That's how I experienced education. It was very... I have to learn this and I have to memorize this. How do I get through this versus a growth mindset 
actively learning where you make the decision. I want to learn this. And so it opens up a positive attitude and allows for, for more mental flexibility and enjoyment. It should be, you know, it's something Definitely. I came to realize very late in life that learning should be enjoyable. Yeah. Yes, even certainly. even when it's uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that, that, that's probably like a good uh, a good compass or a good indicator as well. If you're learning something and if it feels uncomfortable, it's probably something that you need to learn learn a bit more about. Um, yeah, I think I think for me, it, it probably the most obvious version is like philosophy. When I was younger, that I thought just philosophy just sounded so so wanky <laughs> so so like the the kids at school who were into philosophy just seemed like a different a different breed <laughs> but then it wasn't until like now like you know seven or eight nine ten years later where i've discovered philosophy in a different sense in a non-academic sense that i, I get really interested i get really interested in it i think another important element of uh, of tying this into the same like being open being curious i think you need to be humble as well so you need to recognize uh, that you're not a finished product, recognize that you don't know everything. The quote is like, as your island of knowledge grows, so too does the shoreline of your ignorance. So, knowing that everything that you learn really just gives you more things that you need to keep learning. It opens your eyes to more things that you don't that you don't yet know. And there's a, a 20th century Italian philosopher, Umberto Eco, uh, who had stacks and stacks and stacks of bookshelves. Um, and whenever anyone came uh, into into like his personal library and they said, how could you have possibly read all these books? You know, you've got every wall is covered in books. There must be thousands, tens of thousands of books in here. And he said, it's it's not so much uh, the books that I've read that are important. It's more about having this visual representation of all these books that I haven't read yet that I still want to read just to really show yourself that, hey, okay, there's one shelf. You've read all of these. What about these three other shelves that you haven't even, you haven't even scratched the surface of yet? There's so much out there that you still don't know. No matter how much you've learned, there's still going to be so much more that you still need to learn. What was the trigger for you to make that take that step into learning more about philosophy, something you had no interest in whatsoever? Yeah, I think it was just something I'd, I'd heard in in passing, I guess, as part of the normal, like, you know, reading books and, and listening to podcasts and taking online courses, all the stuff I was already doing in specific areas. And every now and then, somebody would have a throwaway reference to this philosopher or this book or this idea. And it would just be like in passing and like slowly, 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 I'd start to hear more different people giving those same references and, you know, more people recommending this specific book. And I guess over time, that gradual build up, uh, it sort of uh, whacked me out of that. Hang on, maybe it's not just the nerdy kids at the front of the class who do philosophy. Maybe other people do philosophy as well. And, and maybe there is a different way of thinking about it. Oh, that's really fascinating. And it also brings to mind something that I've been actively doing is surrounding myself with people who challenge me. I don't, mm. so I, I seek that out on purpose because I don't want to become complacent and lazy. Definitely. And so you and I met podcasting and that was kind of a jumping off point for me to start to become more immersed in the Akimbo community, taking different workshops and surrounding myself with 
people who don't look like me, who come from mm. who are from different countries, of different backgrounds. It's not that I wasn't doing it before. If you look on my Facebook page, for example, my friends don't look alike. I, I think I've I've been really actively trying to do better to really seek mm. out people who I find, wow, this person is and I am gonna say smart because that's <laughs> what I want yeah. them to be. I want I want to be surrounded by people who are smarter than me. So then I can ask myself questions or they can recommend something or they can open up a door for me, something I never thought about. And I can take chances and learn something different outside of my comfort zone. Mm, yeah, I like that a lot. I think that's vitally, that's vitally important. And I think probably using smart is good if you're labeling, if you're labeling someone else as smart, someone you can aspire to to grow towards and that's good if you label yourself as smart maybe it's a bit limiting but i like i like that that way of doing it well i will say a little pushback on that i will say that i've had to embrace that adjective for myself in order to allow mm. myself to open the door because then it can mm. become i'm not allowed to go into that room because as we talked about before if i label myself as well i'm not smart if i have that attitude, then I'm mm. not, it may be too intimidating for me to dance with other smart people. So, yeah. yes, I consider myself smart so I can open the door, walk, walk into the same room and not feel intimidated and still benefit yeah. from everyone who's there. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's a very good point, actually. And I think my don't call yourself smart advice is probably like I'm saying it, but it's more like really I'm saying it to myself. Like I do consider myself to be very, very, very smart, which is like I need to like uh, to bring that down a few <laughs> notches for sure, um, which is which is sort of why I guess I've been been hammering that that so much. That's fair. That's <laughs> fair. And, and I do understand what you mean in terms of keeping the humility, because if you do think, mm. okay, I'm done with this, I am an absolute expert in so many arenas or I've I know this like the back of my hand then you're never going to allow yourself another creative breakthrough hmm hmm okay I've got I've got it I think I think I found the answer here um Scott Adams the guy who created uh the Dilbert cartoons mm -hmm. he talks about uh ego as a tool using ego as a tool uh his book loser think he says it's a loser think to think that uh, ego is like a, a fixed trait, is just who you are. He says it's it's much more helpful to think of ego as a tool that you can either dial up or dial down as a situation requires it. So, you need to dial, like say if you're, you're, you've got an idea and you're starting a new business, you probably need to dial your ego down. If you think this is the best idea in the world, I'm going to become a billionaire, ego in that sense is going to lead you to take unnecessary mm -hmm. risks and you're going to do things mm -hmm. wrong. But at the same time, if you're going for, say, a job interview, you should dial your ego up so you're confident so that you say, I'm the best candidate for this position. That's going to give you the confidence to walk into that interview and deliver properly. So, I think perhaps maybe smartness is is something that we should be dialing up and down as well. If we're, if we're tackling a brand new subject we've never learned before, maybe it's good to think I'm smart and that so you know that Whilst at the start, it's going to be tricky. There's going to be lots of things I don't understand. I am smart, so I can understand this later if I keep working at it. Um, whereas if you think you're the smartest person in the world, there's nothing more to learn, that's probably when you need to dial your, your, your smartness ratio down a bit. Mm-hmm. I like that frame. And so, how 
do you personally overcome any conditioning, any back, any baggage and push past that to ask questions? So how do you let yourself be uncomfortable is another way of putting that. I think forcing myself to learn new and different things is one part of that in the, the early days and even still now, like just reading a lot of books is probably my, my excuse um, for saying I'm learning things um, or just like my justification, whereas like actually doing things with that is, is far more important. Crossing the, that threshold from just like learning and, and consuming uh, knowledge or consuming information and shifting that into creating or, or actually doing something with that information is what's going to give you a lot more learnings later down the track. So, I think it, I think it comes with like not just trying to read things or take things in but actually doing something with it. I think that's going to give you a hell of a lot of learnings and that's going to probably be something that can unshackle you from some of the, the fixed mindsets or some of the, the biases or some of the things that you've thought about yourself. When you actually start doing things in the real world, uh, talking to new people, trying new things, I think that's going to open you up to, to start to chip away at some of the, the conditioning that you've had, I guess, to, to really show you that, what hey, whatever you thought before might not be 100% correct. When I was in medical school, there was this idea, you learn it once, you do mm. it, and then you teach it. The point I'm making is when you actually have to put something into practice and then you have to teach someone else how to do it, that's when you really figure out if you've yeah. learned the material or learn it more appropriately. Mm. Yeah, I like that a lot. That ties into one of my other, my other tools uh, coming up for the toolbox, the idea of consume, curate, create. So, mm. step one is consume. So, that's... For me, that was reading a lot of books. I was consuming. Step two is curate. So, curating, that's when you're, I guess, filtering all these lessons into a way that you, where you're picking the best stuff. So, so, for me, that was the, the What You Will Learn podcast where I do with a mate where we read a book each week and then we share the best lessons. So, I'd put that into the curate category where we're taking somebody else's ideas and we're, you know, we're filtering out what's the best 30%. We're curating that down and here's the best ideas from this one book. So, I'd say that's like the curate phase. And then the create phase is that's when you're doing something more original, more unique, more on mm. you. Obviously, you're still going to be lying on, relying on all the things that you've consumed and curated, but you're going to be putting your own spin on it. So, I'd say now we're, we're writing a book through the, the podcast where we're sharing, I guess, our ideas of all the different things we've learned. So, I think that's in creating something new out of what you've already consumed and curated. You've gone to the, the final stage, which is, which is like what you said. Once you teach something, it really solidifies it more for yourself. Mm -hmm. So, it's, yeah, it's learn, do, and teach is the simple way of putting it, which <coughs> you put so elegantly. <laughs> that's a much – actually, that's a, that's a much better way, actually, learn, do, teach. Yeah, I like that better. <laughs> How do you ask better questions? Yeah, I think that's a. I think that's a good question. That's a very good question. <laughs> uh, I think it's. I think it's. Uh, I think it comes with, with again with practice, challenging yourself with wanting to ask better questions. The most obvious example of this, I guess, is the in the 
doing the podcast and interviewing people on the podcast, at the start, when we were asking people questions, it was or when we were doing interviews with authors, it was very much uh, we'd planned the 10, here's the 10 questions we're going to ask. Question one, bang. Question two, bang. And we literally just went through that list and asked those questions. And then it evolves to, okay, you've got your set questions, but feel free to ask a follow-up question. I think that's important. Um, and then it evolves to, okay, here's the general ideas or general themes that we want to discuss. We haven't got word-for-word questions planned out in a certain order. We're just going to go with wherever the conversation goes. So, I think being being comfortable and having practiced that already, it allows you to then ask better questions. So, that's just like, a, that's like I guess, a very niche example, but I think that applies to, to everybody. The more you're willing to ask questions, the more you're willing to learn more new things, the more you're comfortable in where you are and, you know, I guess like if you're, if you're not comfortable with where you are, you're probably scared to ask a question. You might not know, is that question appropriate to ask or not? So, I guess being, being comfortable with where you are allows you to take more risks again and, and ask and push yourself to ask those better questions. Who's on your team? Who's on my team? I'd say all of the authors of the books I'm reading are on my team in a big way because I'm assuming you mean you don't mean team as in who do you work with day to day or who helps you with uh, with the things you're doing. It's more like I guess the, your, your team in life. I think the, the authors of the books I'm reading is one element of the team, just almost like the coach, I guess, of the team. Then I think you've got the other team mates. So, that's the people that you're playing the game with. So, I'd say that's like in, in my life, it's the people like my my podcast co-host, Adam Jones. It's people like the a certain group of people who I work with, not everybody who I work with in my in my day job, but there are certain people who you know who are on a similar journey to you and who aren't just there to do the bare minimum, scrape by. And then I guess in the in the personal life as well, there's there's people on your on your team, whether that's a an intimate partner, uh, whether that's your parents, siblings. I think they're also on your team as well. Mm, I like it. You're not alone. It's mm. it's important to remember that you're not alone, and you do need people in your life to support your mission to become a better person, rather than hinder mm. that. And it's important to be able to identify who those people are. Definitely. And I think it's important, tying back to what you said before, that the people on your team shouldn't all be just carbon copies of yourself. They should be all different people in the obvious sense, different ages, different genders, different religions, different backgrounds. That's the obvious sense. But then also just different ways of of thinking, Um, you know, more progressive, more conservative, uh, whether that's people who uh, are shooting for the moon versus people who are just comfortable or, or happy with what they're doing currently. Um, I think it's a mix of all of those different ideas as well. Hmm. Do you have anything else in the toolbox that you wanted to talk about? One other one that I, I think we didn't talk about was, I wanted to say was one important tool is to avoid like black and white thinking, recognize that there's so much gray in between. So, you can... Uh, read one book and it'll say, hey, here's the answer. And you think, oh my goodness, I've just found the answer. But then six months later, you read a different book and they say, hey, here's the answer. And you think, hang on, these two answers are like 180 degrees. They're completely opposite. They're they're so opposed to each other, but somehow they're both right. Like, how can they both be right? So, I think you've got to recognize that the the things that you're learning uh, at the very start, you might think you've got all the answers, but the more you keep learning, the more you realize that 
maybe the exact opposite is true and, and maybe neither are true, but maybe somewhere halfway in between is true or, or maybe it's a little bit of a mix of both. So, I think that's important. Um, and then the only other thing I uh, we sort of didn't cover is building like a learning system, mm. I guess. So, reckon, so, as part of that system, uh, I think we spoke about it last time, talking about the difference between goals versus mm-hmm. systems in that a, a, a goal is like something you're shooting towards. It's, a, it's an end point. And the problem with the goal is that every day until you get to that goal, you haven't achieved anything yet. Whereas a system is something you do every day, you're building up towards it. Whereas every single day that you do that system is a day that you can win. So, if that's like, uh, if that's exercise, then maybe a goal is running a marathon. And then every day from now until you finish that marathon, you haven't achieved your goal yet. And then as soon as you achieve it, you tick it off. The thing that, you would, that was driving you is now gone. Whereas a system is like, I'm going to run 5Ks every single day. So, that's a system that you can, every day that you do that, you're a winner, you tick it off, you've done your system and that's helping you gradually improve. So, I think in terms of a learning system, there's a few elements. Obviously, I think it's something you need to do repeatedly and consistently. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to pick the methods of learning that is going to work best for you. So, for me, it's uh, books, love reading books. Um, but recognize that not everybody loves reading books. Maybe it's listening to podcasts, maybe it's watching videos, maybe it's taking online courses, maybe it's participating in workshops, uh, maybe it's getting out there and just meeting new people, maybe that's your preferred method of learning. So, I think that's one vital element of it. Um, And another vital element of it, I think, is what we talked about, about not just getting stuck in learning, but also doing, also teaching, uh, is is a vital part. Uh, vitally important part of your learning system and then I think as as well as that recognizing the things that you want to learn is you got to have some way to know what you're missing I guess so like we said before we can sort of get stuck in our echo chambers we need to have have different team members that are giving us different ideas Um, so we need to be not just learning the things that we want to learn but also somehow trying to find the things that we I guess need to learn something something new that we probably haven't been exposed to yet, but we need to learn something new. Mm, mm-hmm. There was a lot in that answer. Yeah. I'm not the best auditory learner. I'm more of a visual learner. And I'm also very kinesthetic. I, I have these moments where I'm exercising, taking a walk, where I'll have an idea or I'll have a question or a solution to a problem that I've been mulling over occurs to me at that time. So what that's taught me is just because I'm not naturally an auditory learner doesn't mean that I can't strengthen that skill. So I've also started to reframe what it looks like for me to read. It doesn't necessarily have to be physically holding a book or or whatever device. It can also be listening to the book. That counts as reading too. And then when I put them together, when I listen and I hold the book and I look, the information is integrated faster. So I've been doing that, Mm. a combination of putting on the auditory book and then having the physical book so I can see it. It's more senses. So there are times where I'll listen. I'll go out on a walk or if I'm doing my chores around my house, I listen to an audio book. 
And that's been very helpful. And I've found that I retain the information a lot better if I'm moving and listening at the same time. So that's something that I've been cultivating so that I can have you, you mentioned consistency. And that's super important as a lifelong learner. I, in my opinion, consistency and discipline in order to achieve what you want to achieve and to get better. There have to be habits in place, systems in place. So for me, that's been figuring out how to incorporate a reading habit in my regular routine. And so mm. those are a couple of things that I've done to help. Yeah. I think another couple of elements of that system, which I think are vitally important, I didn't, I didn't mention is... You need to make it enjoyable and you need to make it easy. Like if you think this learning system that you build is something that is, it's going to be structured three hours a day where you wake up at 4.30 a.m. and do a specific routine every single day. Like that's that's not easy nor enjoyable for me anyway. <laughs> uh, so, I think, it, I think it needs to be enjoyable in that you're learning enjoyable things are challenging yourself and it needs to be easy in that as you say it needs to fit into your daily schedule if that's you go for a walk and listen to a podcast for 15 minutes or if that's hey you've got uh you got 10 minutes of downtime just read read three or four pages of a book it doesn't mean you you have dinner you have a shower you go and lie in your bed for an hour and a half that's the only way that you can read it needs to be uh easy that you can do it without um feeling imposed i guess without it being a chore yeah yeah because you've made it a priority. Yeah. You know, so you yeah. soon, this like is part it. of your identity. You identify yourself as mm. a healthy person or a lifelong learner, whatever it is. And so then what are the behaviors of a lifelong learner? And so then that also helps it to prevent it from becoming drudgery. Do you have a question for me? I do, I do. And it ties into one of the questions you asked about how do you ask a better question uh, and also the question you asked about how do you overcome those biases or the conditioning or the baggage. My current experience is a very narrow experience. As much as I try to push outside of that by reading books, listening to podcasts, taking online courses, trying new and different things, uh, it's still a very narrow uh, lens, I guess. I'm, I'm young, middle class, Caucasian, able-bodied, straight, male, and it's obviously falls into, but just by doing that, just by being a male, I'm already eliminating 50% of the experiences in the world by being straight and white. I'm, I'm probably down to like this small minority of experiences where I can't really get a true understanding of what other people are going through. I guess my question is, what do you think is a good way that, that I can continue to learn, that I can continue to push outside this, this narrow lens or outside of these narrow boundaries and learn more about other people and other perspectives? Well, I like what you talked about in terms of beyond curating and, and actually practicing creating. And I also liked when the question I asked you about who's on your team so that you can evaluate who's on your team and think about their perspectives? And do they bring you different perspectives? I think part of the problem is that we normalize what feels comfortable with this powerful platform that you and I love so much, which is podcasting, using that platform as another opportunity to talk to people who 
come from different cultures and, and have different ways of thinking. So just thinking about how you construct your team and making sure that whenever you start mm. to feel super comfortable, you say, you pay attention to that trigger. It's a warning sign. Mm, I like that a lot. I think that's, that's some great advice. Yeah, thank you for asking that. Has your definition of what it means to be healthy changed, Adam? <laughs> well, I think what's been um, telling in the time where, uh, you know, I spent six, more than six months at home all day, every day in 2020, I guess gave a, a different way of looking at health for sure. For me, I guess uh, an important part of health is starting to recognize the things that make you feel good and make you feel better and give you more energy. Eating that bar of chocolate might feel good in the three minutes that you're eating it, but then for the next hour, your concentration might suffer. Um, I say getting older uh, at 27, like starting to recognize those things, like sitting down at a desk all day every day starts to hurt if you're not doing it right. And, you know, eating the wrong things for lunch can really impact the rest of your day. And, you know, not going for enough walks can really drain you as well. So I think it's, for me, it's starting to recognize, be more conscious, be more intentional about movement, about the things I'm putting in my body and about how does this help me perform better in the short, medium and long term. And now it's time for the Mindful Minute. Find a comfortable and quiet place to sit. Lengthen your spine, keep your feet flat on the floor, and your shoulders stacked over your hips. Now notice your breathing. The gentle rise and fall of your inhale and exhale, respectively, from belly to collarbones, and collarbones to belly. Think about a time when you learned something new. Observe your breathing as you recall that memory. Now, let's smooth it out, inhaling to a count of 4 seconds and exhaling to a count of 8 seconds. Come back to the present moment. Open your eyes and notice how you feel. Dear wise women, thank you for growing our community. Keep using your wisdom and emotional intelligence to share this episode with someone in your social circle who will benefit from hearing it. Your grandma and your mom need yoga. Maybe you need yoga too. I teach yoga to wise women. I believe in empowering and educating wise women to thrive on their terms at every stage of life. Let's hear what a wise woman has to say. 
And I could not at this point give up yoga because it really guides me and my, my muscles, my body movements in a way that it just hasn't, I've never been able to do before. So thank you, Nadine. To learn more, connect with me at yogimd.net. And finally, podcast theme music is by my niece, Maya Bishop, on vocals. My daughter, Lizzie Kelly, on guitar and bass. Yours truly, on percussion. And produced by Tim Buell. And original music for The Transitions by Charles Wilson, also known as Black Pac. Thanks for being here. See you next time.